This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Just before Fight Back went to air on Monday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Premier Doug Ford announced they'd come to terms on a childcare deal for Ontario families. By the end of this year, the savings for families could amount to nearly $6,000 when a 50% fee cut kicks in. And by 2025, childcare will come at an average cost to parents of $10 a day. But there's a Zoomer story in the midst of this deal, since many grandparents are the ones providing free full-time care for their grandchildren. But now that costs are coming down, will fewer grandparents be involved in full-time childcare? Libby had this discussion with our Zoomer squad, Peter Mugrich, senior editor at Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer of CARP, a new vision of aging. Well, it certainly will help overworked uh, grandparents. There are many of them who have to provide uh, child care for their grandkids because the parents can't afford it. They don't want to do it all the time. It really uh, controls their lives. I do have many friends who can't do things or have to back out at the last minute if child care needs uh, arise. So that uh, I think that uh, uh, with some exceptions, uh, uh, older Ontarians are going to welcome this announcement today. David Kravitz? I think that Bill's right. That um, two, two points. Number one, this was made even worse during COVID because there were many people who couldn't send their kids to school. So the kids are at home on Zoom. Who's watching them while I have to go to work? Uh, so there was even double duty for the grandparents. But I would also point out that even with or without child care, there's a kind of a utilitarian meaning to that. But for a lot of grandparents, they like being with the grandkids. And I mean, it's a whole other topic in a sense. But to many people who were perhaps not as involved as parents or not as warm and fuzzy as parents, they are seeing the grandchildren as an opportunity to perhaps bolster family relationships and the grandkids are almost a bridge back to uh, the kids. And that's a whole other theme. But it is a reality for a lot of people that uh, being an active grandparent becomes a constructive part of your life. Peter, I know that uh, a lot of the readers of the magazine are grandparents, and this is surely affecting them. Yeah. And, and, uh, it's interesting because it, David mentioned about the the sort of the, the grandparents carrying on the the bond like like a, a, the family bond and and in our neighborhood um, there are a lot of older um, Portuguese and Italian grannies uh, known as I guess they're called who who look after their grandkids and um, their grandkids speak Portuguese and they speak Italian so that kind of that kind of early teaching element um, will be lost when the kids go to 
subsidized daycare. And, and I think many parents will want that bond there. And even though there is subsidized daycare, they will, um, you know, they'll want their, their, their grandparents to still play a role in, in, in the child care activities. Well, yeah, I'm just saying that it's, it's one thing to play a role and, and even an important and central role, but it's another thing to be chained to basically. Right. To be expected every day to provide, to be there to provide care. Or to always be available to it. I mean, right. that's, that's, you know, with the people that I know, that's kind of what, uh, gets me sometimes. It's, it's not, are you available on, on Tuesday night, but it's, you better be. <laughs> David, that's, I mean, is that... That's the key difference. It, the, when it becomes an obligation, right? particularly right. when the grandparent feels that it's not a dire emergency obligation. I think everybody understands doctor's visits or, or, you know, heaven forbid, illnesses or something where everybody's got to kind of step up and pitch in. But if you feel that you've become... Uh, a convenience service on demand. <laughs> well, ex- exactly. <laughs> then, then it changes everything. And I think that's something that is, uh, and that won't be solved by daycare because who says it's that kind of uh, obligation only uh, it doesn't occur after 5 p.m. Well, it often does. Well, it often does. Yeah. So people, you know, should do they have to stay home so their uh, kids can go on a date night? That's exactly right. That's it's, the problem. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer of CARP, A New Vision of Aging. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Our Tuesday strategy panel also talked about the child care deal between Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford, but from a political perspective. What do voters make of not only the done deal on child care, but the apparent enthusiastic cooperation between Ontario's premier and the prime minister at the news conference when it was announced? Libby spoke about the friendly dynamic just two months from the provincial election, no less, with conservative strategist John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario finance minister. It's very um, nice to watch these guys do their bit, and, uh, and it's understandable when you have opponents from the different political stripes at the provincial and the federal level, and then and that's been the sort of the norm in in our, in our history. Um, I think it's more advantageous for Justin Trudeau to keep the Conservatives federally at bay, and it's great for Doug Ford to keep the NDP and the Liberals here at home um, away from uh, criticizing him on this matter. And uh, it's self-serving on both their parts. Um, it's going to be obviously a little bit more difficult now for. Uh, Stephen Del Duca to argue the point that he's not there for the children and those most in need when, in fact, he says, well, I held back and I got another year and I'm doing what we have to do in order to provide full-day kindergarten and child care for those in our community, and I'm fighting the cause. And it's all about trust, really. That's all this is about. And people seem to trust Doug Ford to make mistakes and <laughs> to fix them and to change his mind. And they're okay with that, it seems. Um Whereas I don't think the others have that same ability. Karen, 
what do you think of that, first of all? That uh, is, is this kind of a uh, brilliant maneuver on Doug Ford's part, like just before an election? Uh, yeah, I, um, I think brilliant, maybe overstating Doug's <laughs> achievement here. But, it, uh, you know, I, he couldn't, I don't think he could afford to go into an election without some type of child care deal. And, you know, I understand why he held out because Ontario has full-day kindergarten, starting in junior kindergarten, which is quite different than some of the other provinces. So there was um, maybe good reason to hold out and try to negotiate a better deal. Whether he did or he didn't, I have no idea. But what I do think is that, you know, timing, his time was running out on it because if he didn't do it, he would have faced scrutiny about why that wasn't done. And so I think really it was checking off that box and, you know, smiling next to Justin Trudeau. You know, I think to Charles's point, there is a tactical advantage that he can, you know, be seen to be liberals with liberals, and then he can see, be seen to be conservatives with conservatives. So to that end, I think it was it was a good move. John, you know, uh, I was chatting with a conservative friend of mine who said, Doug Ford is a liberal. I can't vote for him again. <laughs> John? Well, I, I don't I don't think that's the case. I, I, I don't, you know, it, it has been said before where, you know, Doug and, and, and was never, and even Rob, his, his, his late brother, were never real conservatives in a sense of, of you know, card-carrying conservatives. Uh, his father was, of course. His father was an MVP, as we all know. But um, I think they were much more populist um, in some ways, but obviously more center-right than center-left. So, so, but no, I wouldn't say he's a liberal. But I do think that the, the, the agreement that they had with, with child care was something that we've talked about on the show. And we always knew that it was imminent. And, and obviously the timing of it was perfect because, you know, we're getting into the, the, the short strokes of, of an election call in, in early May. So it does, uh, I think, not only feed that, that momentum for the party to say that that's one major file that's now been resolved and it takes it away from the liberals but also the other timing too is that it completely um drowned out any potential signage or uh, coverage from the liberal convention or the liberal election uh, convention that happened on the weekend other than the fact that they got you know a lot of a lot of complaints about not wearing masks but uh, but you know so that was also the other strategic thing about having it now i'm sure that that wasn't the only thought of it but it just the fact that it happened after the, the liberal convention was probably a positive thing for for the conservatives and it does help and i also just one last thing it, it is very true with respect to what charles was saying regarding the opposite parties federally and provincially it has been a long-standing history quite frankly that whatever party is in is in power in ottawa the opposites in ontario and this such deal in this kind of thing is exactly how why it works so well. And I have mentioned on the show that the Liberal NDP coalition that happened last time would probably benefit uh, the Premier, Doug Ford, and likely will, hopefully will, in the, cor- in the course of the next little while. Conservative strategist John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, Ontario's latest sunshine list tells the tale of the haves and the have-nots during the COVID pandemic. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
While Ontario's annual sunshine list of public servants earning at least $100,000 a year added 38,000 employees, what might be more staggering are the additional Ontario taxpayer-funded positions that are well in excess of $500,000 a year. Four of the top sunshine list spots are occupied by senior figures at Ontario Power Generation. CEO Kenneth Hartwick received $1.6 million in salary in 2021, up by nearly a third from 2020. His chief strategy officer, Dominic Minier, was at $1.5 million. Chief operations and chief nuclear officer, Sean Granville, made over a million. And chief projects officer, Michael Martelli, also made over a million in salary. In fifth spot was University Health Network Chief Executive Kevin Smith, whose purview includes Toronto General and Western Hospitals, at $845,000, followed by Chief Executive Phil Verster of the Metrolink's Transit Agency, who earned just under $839,000. Then there's Dr. Doris Grinspan, President of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, who made $565,000 last year, up from five. 516000 in 2020. Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, joined Libby to talk about what's going on. Well, we've been seeing since really the pandemic began that it's really a tale of two Ontarios here in the province. We're seeing those who work for the government and particularly many of those who work for the government, who get salaries at 500000 600000 700000 all the way past a million. Uh, we're seeing them see uh, their pay grow, despite the fact that we had lockdowns and closures. And we saw Ontario taxpayers all across the province lose jobs or hours at work or have their small businesses shut down. And so it's really difficult uh, to see such a substantial increase in the number of people are making over $100,000 uh, in an environment like this. And then, of course, to see a major increase with some of these extremely high-paid people in the government sector. Um, you know, we need fundamental change here. The province can't afford this. We've got a deficit that's over $13 billion. Uh, and it's really not the time to be seeing such massive increases when you have people in the private sector who've lost their jobs or their businesses, and they're the ones paying those salaries. You know, I remember back in the day when there was always uh, a lot of outrage that greeted this. You don't really see much of that. And I'm uh, I'm looking at our board and, and people don't seem to be upset about uh, this. Um, and again, one of the other things that really strikes me is that we've known all along that there are really two pandemics. There are people who've been really, really hit hard. There are people who've done really, really well during the pandemic. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you can look at the health agencies as well. Um, you know, they've been doing important work, but there's people like chief medical officers of health all across the province. They've been doing very important work. But you look at the chief medical officer of health in uh, Sudbury made over $800,000 last year uh, while you had frontline nurses and others who were well, making and a small again, fraction of that. It, 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 I, I mean, that left me shaking my head because it's not even remotely comparable to other uh, medical officers of health. 
Yeah, not at all. That was extraordinarily high. Our chief medical officer of health for the whole province of Ontario made about four hundred fifty thousand dollars last year. Now that's still a heck of a lot that's of money. That's a lot. I think but that's uh, that's more than the premier makes. It is. It's twice as much as what the premier makes. Right. And I think that's an important conversation as well. Yeah, and and who sets these salaries, and what are they based on? I mean, I think that's that's part of the other question. Like you have one medical officer of health making that kind of money and then other ones that, you know, make a fraction of it. It, it, it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It absolutely doesn't. And I really do think that it's time. And I think a lot of people hear the number 100,000 and you mentioned that this list was first created in 1996. Well, getting $100,000 at that time was a heck of a lot of money. It translates to something like $160,000 today. So if some people are perhaps not uh, as alarmed, someone working uh, as a government employee in this province is making around $100,000, I think we need a separate list to focus on all of these bureaucrats who are getting extremely high pay. And that's got to be something that we have to be outraged as a province. Um, you know, we'll talk about someone making $100,000, but then as we see these bureaucrats, we just talked about Penny Sutcliffe making $800,000, Kenneth Hartwick making $1.6 These are the kinds of people we really have to be focusing on and scrutinize their efforts on and question the government as to why they're making so much money that we, the taxpayers, are paying for Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The recent tour of the Caribbean by the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge did not exactly go according to plan. Prince William and Kate Middleton's trip was disrupted by protests, and even the Prime Minister of Jamaica told the royal couple of the country's intention to sever ties with the monarchy, while other leaders were demanding reparations for slavery. Adding to the background, it's been about four months since Barbados severed ties with the monarchy. Will and Kate's trip was supposed to be a celebration of Elizabeth's 70 years as queen. But now their visit to the Caribbean has prompted discussions in Canada whether people here would like to bring an end to the British monarch serving as our head of state. Peter Dinolo, vice chairman of Hill and Knowlton Canada, is among those people. He joined Libby on Monday to discuss. The years go by, there's less and less of, a, of an attachment to uh, to uh, Britain and to the crown. I mean, my views for uh, opposing the monarchy, and I've been on your show before and spoken about them, really have to do with the, you know, the, the fact that it's an anti-democratic uh, institution that, you know, you're born into a bloodline that gives you, uh, that gives you, uh, uh, makes you head of state, which is fundamentally undemocratic. And secondly, it's, it's, uh, it's a foreign institution. I mean, there was a time when Canada, of course, was a British colony, but that was, uh, you know, more than a century ago, or 150 years ago. And we've moved away from that, and our population doesn't have ties to the UK, and it's time to move. I think in, in, in the Caribbean, it's, it's, uh, it's more, even more dramatic because of the role of uh, the British Empire in a very violent colonization of that region, of the role of slavery. Uh, uh, you know, which the British Empire uh, brought to the Caribbean. And so I think for, for those reasons, it's even more dramatic in that, in that part of the world. There's always been a lot of talk that, uh, that 
we or others should wait until after the Queen's demise, but she seems to be really stepping back from royal duties. Do you think I mean, that... She's, she's incredible. She's, I mean, I'm a virulent anti-monarchist, but I have to tip my hat to, to a remarkable person. I mean, she's kept this institution going 70 years longer than it had to by any rights because of her discipline, because of her approach. She's really, uh, really one of the most remarkable people in the world. Uh, that said, uh, you know, listen, I was just listening to, to ads on your, on your own radio station for estate planning. People don't wait until, obviously, they're gone to plan their estates. They have to do that in advance. And now is the time, while the queen is still with us, she won't be with us for a lot longer. And I don't think that's, uh, you know, that's just a, uh, 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 a fact of, uh, a demographic fact, uh, or a scientific fact. But, uh, so the time to plan is not after she's gone. But but before, just like, you know, we plan for uh, our estates uh, before we go. And well, I think it's totally legitimate to have these discussions. And Canadians are, you know, we were so polite. We like to, whenever subjects that are somewhat controversial come up, we look at our shoes and kind of like cough. And it's the argument here is, and it's a, listen, it's a legitimate argument. It's not bothering anyone. It's not holding us back. Uh, it's just a symbol. So why don't we live with it? Well. You know, the Canadian flag, uh, the, the old red ensign, which had the British flag in it, was just a symbol. And everyone said that to Lester Pearson in 1965. And uh, he was right to get rid of it because it was, he was right to, to lead the charge for a Canadian flag, the one we have now, because it is a symbol that unites Canada and it brings people together. And uh, the British monarchy is not. Any plans to try and push this forward? Well, there's no real kind of organized group. It's 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 uh, it's it's a, a view that I've had really since I was a teenager. It's gonna, you know, uh, any politician would look at this. I know I you know I worked for for best boss I ever had was John Prime Minister John Gretchen, and he wouldn't touch it because well, first of all, he's not anti-monarchy. He's quite close to the Queen, and secondly, he uh, he understood that this wasn't a, uh, a ballot question that people were going to stake their, their, you know, their, their decide their ballots on, and it was just rile up a lot of people who, uh, who like the monarchy. And so I think that's probably the way it is now, although I think that decreases with every, uh, with every year. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? No, listen, I mean, it's, uh, it's always great to push a pet, a pet project like this that I've held for a long time. And I think the, the, the more we can talk about, you know, the democratic institutions that bind us together, uh, parliament, elections, the laws, the Charter of Rights, uh, the, the, the stronger we, we are as a country, as opposed to kind of fawning over some fairy tale. Peter Danolo, Vice Chairman of Hill and Knowlton Canada, in conversation with Libby on Monday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Ron in Guelph phoned about Canada's attachment to the monarchy. 
You know, one thing I like about the monarchy is that what sep- it, it, the monarchy is what separates us from the United States. I don't really want us to get to the point where we become just another republic. I mean, we've got the royal family who come here, they visit, and they make news in the U.S. And I just think it's, I think we should keep the ties with the monarchy. Gabriel in Waterloo called about childcare and grandparents. I think it's wonderful that they're getting subsidy for daycare, but I really think that it is very uh, selfish and disrespectful to expect grandparents to babysit all the time. Um, I certainly did not agree to that, and I never did that. I helped out somewhat, but I felt that I did my duty raising mine. Now it's your turn to raise yours. Uh, people around you are are happy to help out, but you have to. You can't expect. Pe- and you know, it's very, very draining physically and mentally to have little people around. And now, fightbacks knockout call of the week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the fightback knockout call of the week is Pat in Toronto, who phoned about rising COVID hospitalizations related to loosened public health restrictions. I'm getting very concerned with the use of statistics. I mean, it all sounds great to say, well, the rate has dropped or, it, you know, it's only X. If one person dies because we didn't wear masks, that is one person too much. Now, you also can take the other aspect that if people get sick and go to the hospital, they may survive, but it may cost for each one of them tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. So there are two very good reasons that we should be very vigilant and we should maintain as many of these practices as possible that really don't impact our daily life, but will save somebody or a number of people's lives. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.